Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, Miss Vicky, I guess, is taking the little ones back. The household of faith is a wonderful thing. We've been studying that. Uh, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. In the Bibles there uh, around you, it's on page 992, 992, uh, top of the page. And uh, this is a wonderful day. We have a potluck planned after, which means aromas are wafting, distracting you, making it really hard for me to preach, and, uh, or at least for you to hear. Uh, I get that. Uh, kids are squirrely. The weather outside is horrible, so you're going to be here and stick around for food. I'm glad you're doing that. Uh, but I will try to make this to the point and brief so we can get to the fellowship time. Amen? All right. Thank you, brother. <laughs> uh, but we are going to look at God's word. You did come here to get fed, and I would uh, be remiss if we didn't look at his word. That's why we're wanting to worship him and hear from him. We've been studying uh, this marvelous little book that Paul the Apostle writes to his uh, protege, his delegate, a young man named Timothy. Timothy might have been in his 40s. Uh, so when, you, when we think young man, don't necessarily think... Uh, real young, uh, but he, he could have been, uh, he, at least he was young enough that, that he was addressing uh, leaders who were older than him. And so Paul gives him some clear instructions on the structure of the household of faith. So we're going to read chapter 3, and we're going to look at the first seven verses, Lord willing, uh, and we definitely need his help. So let's read it, and then we'll pray, and then we'll try to be brief to get to the food. All right, here we go. Uh, this is what uh, Paul writes to us, God through Paul to us this day. It says this, that the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons, if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things." Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own household well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. 
taken up in glory. Let's, let's uh, address that glorious one. Father, uh, thank you for your son, Jesus, in whom is life. There is no other name uh, given to us that we might be saved by than Jesus and his mighty blood. That speaks a better word. Would you bless us as we consider uh, the, the pattern that you have ordained for the local church. And let us learn not only about the local church, but our, about ourselves and, and our individual smaller churches, so to speak. The, the church together is at our dinner table uh, at home many days. Maybe it's just uh, a spouse or a child or two. Or maybe once in a while it's an extended gathering. Or maybe it's just uh, on our own with the Spirit of the living God. Teach us, Lord, about household and teach us about these dynamics and your ordained will and way. And uh, build your house, we pray. For unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. So open our eyes to see and to savor and to delight in Jesus in whom is life and in his ordained and declared will. Thank you for listening. Uh, grant illumination. Amen. Amen. I, I, as we're talking about, we're talking about leaders, right? We're talking about offices. Verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. In other words, you can take it to the bank. You can count on this. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, I, this, the difficulty of a, of, a, of a text like this that is addressed, most of us think that's pretty narrow. Uh, I'm not going to make anyone stand up. There may be 12 people that we're talking to. That's kind of your thinking. Like This is just a handful of guys, men, uh, older men in Christ who need to hear this. The rest of us don't need to pay attention. Uh, not at all. Uh, in fact, the congregation needs to aspire. It says that we are to aspire th- these things and also to know uh, what we're to do and to be. And encourage you in these things. I wanted to read again. I, I mentioned, uh, I think it was last week actually, uh, a eulogy that Charles Spurgeon gave for a, a dear woman named Lavinia Bartlett. And uh, in fact, there's a, a dozen or so copies today. If, if you're interested, you can read just a, a, a wonderful uh, sermon that, uh, that Charles Spurgeon gave at, at her uh, upon the, after she, she passed away. But listen to this description. Uh, and I, whether or not it's about her doesn't matter. Just, just think in a spot as a young person, young in life, to this reality. Uh, he, he, Charles Spurgeon, quotes a psalm where it says, Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, Lord, that we may rejoice and be glad in our days. I've noticed that many of the most eminent saints were called early. Sin, even when repented of and blotted out, leaves a weakness behind. But when the uh, but when the sour is preserved from falling into the grossest, when the soul is preserved from falling into the grossest of sins through an early conversion, there's often developed by the Holy Spirit a character of peculiar beauty, a piety of special excellence. Your Samuels and Josephs and Josiahs and Daniels are men that are greatly beloved by the Lord. And young women who give their hearts to Jesus when they are young are most likely to grow up into Christians who shall be like Deborah, who was a mother in Israel. Those who give to God the morning of their youth shall find him doubly precious in the evening of their days. From seven to seventy, make a, good, make a grand Christian life. And roughly speaking, our beloved friend uh, Lavinia, she realized that joy. I am myself a living testimony, says Spurgeon, of the sweetness of giving the morning of your life to Jesus. I was not yet 16 years of age when I was baptized into the name of the sacred three, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I have never regretted that from my youth I have made a confession of Lord Jesus Christ. So all that to say, 
you will never regret a single day that you devote to Christ. And those who are, the people who said that mostly were older, by the way. Pay attention, younger folk in Christ. The folks who have, who have uh, the most regrets. Now, Jesus is an amazing redeemer. He could absolutely redeem and rescue you from any and every sin. Absolutely. And also, he can help you avoid sins too. He can help you avoid uh, getting your train off the tracks and causing a train wreck <laughs> of your life. Now, he can redeem the train wreck, but wouldn't it be great if you just avoided the whole train wreck to begin with? Wouldn't it be great if you married well? I tell my kids all the time that the most, second most important decision after the first, which is to do, choose to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior, is who are you going to marry? <laughs> because you, you can change your career, but you shouldn't change your wife. You shouldn't change your husband. So, so marry well. You know, uh, make the Lord uh, your fountain of youth, your, your, your wellspring of life, your rock of refuge, even in the, in the latter years. And, and this is describing this reality of what we ought to aspire to be. It's kind of interesting that actually the, what's described here really is a, just a, a, an excellent example of who a Christian should be in fullness. Now, now it's just saying the person who should aspire to, that you should recognize as an elder, as a leader of the church, should be fully Christian, right? I like what our brother Jeff, uh, once in a while, our brother elder Jeff, he says, tongue in cheek, it was mostly Christian. You know, <laughs> this other thing, it was mostly Christian. Like, if a church is mostly Christian, you know, maybe you should look elsewhere. <laughs> if a leader is mostly Christian, maybe, maybe you should look elsewhere. If you're mostly Christian, maybe you should aspire to being more like Jesus. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, and what does that even mean? And how do we, how do, we do that? I'm glad you asked that question. <laughs> How do you order your affairs? And if you're in the position of being a household manager or you have influence, whatever your sphere is, or, or you're thinking through what's going to come in the next chapter of my life, and you, you think about yourself, and uh, very rare is the person who thinks they have everything they need for the next season, the next chapter of life. Most of us are looking at our situation and we think, I don't have what I need. I need something more. I lack something. Wisdom, prudence, I lack resources. I lack opportunity. Lord, help, right? Lord, give me that which I need. This is a a beautiful chapter. It's describing what the church of Christ uh, is to be and how it's built excellently. Because if you read in the Bible, Ezekiel is a great example of this. The book of Ezekiel, you'll read about how there are shepherds and some of them are not so good, leaders. And the Lord gives shepherds, you should be praying that the Lord would give you shepherds after his own heart. Give you a, a, a father in your house if you're young enough and you're still at home. A father after his own heart, right? Who, who would love you and seek you. A mother, like a mother in Israel who, who gets it, who makes Christ the center, right? Who, who serves you as Christ does. Uh, like in Ephesians 5, it says that husbands are to, to, to love their wives as Christ loved the church, right? Who gave himself uh, up for her. Uh, so we're talking about elders here. We're talking about overseers. And, and just by way of orientation, especially if you're, you're newer to Oak Grove, we didn't used to be an elder-led congregation, but, but about, uh, I think it was 2012, we changed our constitution in conviction or by bidding of this particular text in Titus chapter 1 as well, as we were trying to orient ourselves more faithfully and consistently to Scripture, we were confronted with the reality that the people that God asks to lead is not a board of volunteers, but, but people of, of character, 
that, that we can identify maturity, we can identify uh, conviction, we can and, and identify fruit on, the, on, the, on their lives, fruit on the vine, right? And that's being described here. Uh, it's all about character. And the word here, overseer, by the way, is this word bishop. Uh, Episcopos, and we get that word for the denomination Episcopalian. You know, most of us don't think very much of, of that. We don't have any Episcopalian churches in our immediate vicinity. There are some around in the region, but, but this talking about the word bishop. Uh, overseer is the word bishop. It's used five times in the New Testament, two times here in uh, chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, there's a, two other terms that seem like office type terms that are used in the scripture. One is the word pastor. You, you call me sometimes Pastor Josh. It's this word in Greek, uh, poimen. It really just means shepherd. Now that word is used 17 times in the New Testament, but really only one time in regards to the office uh, of a church leader. And that's Ephesians 4.11, or at least the role or position where uh, Paul writes this, that he that is the Lord Jesus in victory gave gifts to the church, namely what? He gave apostles. He gave prophets to the bride. He gave evangelists. He gave pastors and teachers, it says, pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. The third term is the one that we use here in English, it's elder. Uh, it's another denomination uh, takes its name from the Greek word presbyteros. You get the word Presbyterian. Have you heard of that? Maybe. I'm giving you the lie of the land, right? Uh, an elder, that, use, that word's used a ton in the Bible. That's just partly why we use it here. The Bible uses the word elder 285 times. That's a lot of, lot of words that say elder, right? Now, it's not always the elders as offices, office bearers, uh, leaders of, of the tribes of Israel in the Old Testament or here of the, the local church. Of course, it doesn't always mean that. Sometimes it means older person. Uh, but but that it's, there's a lot of data if you use the word elder. And one of the reasons we want to use biblical terms is it helps us establish between congregation and leader uh, as a community of faith what God's standards are, what the job description is, and, and have clarity on that. So when you go to the scriptures and you find descriptions of what shepherds and elders should be, you're more clear. There's less ambiguity, right? If it's in, instead we use terms that we invent, I don't know, CEO or something, that, that we can invest that new term with our own clothing. Does that make sense? So we're just trying to be a, a faithful to the text kind of fellowship. And I'm convinced that all three of these terms, pastor, bishop, and elder, are used actually interchangeably of the same group. And I base that conviction on Acts chapter 20, where the Apostle Paul uses, is recorded as using all three terms to describe this group that he gets to come from Ephesus. Now remember, Paul is writing to Timothy, who's in Ephesus, trying to get the local household of faith back in order, if I may say it. So he, he, he had already just a few a few years before writing this letter, he had visited uh, briefly the elders in Ephesus, had called them to the beach and given them a final charge before he got in prison. And, and this is what he said to them in part. In Acts 20 verse 17, it says that uh, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and he called the elders the presbyteroi, the, the elders of the church to come to him. And then he goes on and gives them this charge. And he says carefully in verse 28, pay careful attention, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops, that is overseers, our word in our text here, to pastor or to care for, to shepherd, that's the word there, for the church of God which he ordained with his own blood. 
So these three things, they're not, I don't think they're meant to be teased out as different offices necessarily, uh, though they may have different dimensions in which you work, but the pastor, the bishop, the elder referring to the same leadership group, the same people. Now, another observation, that in the New Testament, and I would welcome the, if anyone has, finds a reference to this, but in my study of the New Testament, I have never discovered a single instance where a church is mentioned of a single elder. It's always a team. It's, elder is always plural. The elders. You know, throughout the New Testament, you look carefully, there's always plural elders gathering. So it's in Jerusalem, Acts 11, Antioch, Acts 13, Lystra, Conium, Pisidian, Antioch. Uh, you get the point. All these different texts I could point to, there are literally dozens that always mention elders of the church, not elder, not pastor. And I would argue, in fact, just two weeks ago, I was, uh, I was picking up, uh, you don't know what I was going to pick I was picking up something, I was, I was getting on Craigslist or wherever I got this thing, I can't even remember, but I was talking to someone and they were asking about how our church is structured differently than another church in our specific town. And, and essentially, we were talking and it basically boiled down to this, that the other church we were talking about kind of had a key leader and this charismatic figure was the central, he, he tied everything together in the church. That's not our model here. Uh, I, I may speak most often or preach often. That's my gifting to give you. But I'm part of a team of elders. We would aspire rather to be a community where there's warmth and we are together on this. And not one of us is indispensable. right? And so that if lightning should strike here, that the, the church would continue to go on. You know, Jonathan would step up and preach, maybe, or Greg always has a sermon ready to go. He'd just step up and preach, right? Uh, that none of us are, are interchangeable. And if you are uh, in your sphere of influence thinking that you're indispensable, you need to take the, push the pause button on that logic and think through what it means if you are indispensable. And what you should do in preparation for the moment you won't be there. <laughs> that you will be set aside either by death or some other challenge. So uh, part of being a part of the church is the delight to know that if you should be taken out of the picture, your children and those you care about will be fine. Amen. Do you understand? That you've plugged them into a, a group that you trust. That, that you know that, that in, in laboring and raising kids or caring for widows, whatever the case is, that they will be fine if you're gone. Because you're part of a household of faith that loves Jesus. Do you understand? I think you do. That's what we're aspiring uh, to be. Uh, and, and Charles Spurgeon talked about uh, three things were looked for in those who would apply to his pastor's college for training to preach in God's word. They looked for personal piety or character. They looked for churchmanship. And they looked for gifting. And when he says aspire to be, uh, who aspires to the office of overseer, now that's, that is a noble task. He does say that. It's, it's a beautiful task. A Greek might mean that too. It's a beautiful task. And to aspire to that is not a one-day thing. Like you don't just, you know, throw in your resume one day and, and become whatever. This is a, a, you spend years, decades, lifetime building yourself for this position that God might use you for his glory. This isn't an overnight thing. And some of you might be, you know, see, maybe if you're newer or frustrated that you've been part of two years and you've here and you've been part of a pastor, an elder, another situation. But just know this, the body that we build here that we are seeking to cultivate is a beautiful thing. And we are very jealous 
for the, the purity and the harmony and the strength and the maturity of our fellowship. And so we're going slow for a reason, okay? Uh, because we, we want those carefully vetted uh, who have fruit on the tree. It takes time to get to know you and you me. So that's part of what's going on here. So these three terms. And, and they're looking for churchmanship, uh, Mr. Spurgeon would say. That is, someone who has a record of service. I like what he said. We want soldiers, not fops. Uh, soldiers, not dandies, you might be, maybe our, our word today. Uh, earnest laborers, not genteel lawyers. Earn your spears before getting knighted. Don't, the, the person who will only serve at the highest level and never, never another, any other level is automatically disqualified from the office of elder. Because what is an elder? Like Jesus said, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. The elder is those who serve everyone. Right? When Jesus, remember when Jesus at the last, right before the last supper, he wrapped, what did he wrap around his waist? Do you remember? A towel. And what did he do? Do you remember what he did there? He washed the disciples' feet. Now when Jesus was washing their feet, he was serving them, but not a single person in that room was uncertain about who the leader was. Right? So, so we're talking about servant leadership in the home. It starts in the home because he, he says that later. You, you must manage your own household well if you're going to scale up, expand your level of leadership and, and, your, and your, uh, your service. I heard one guy once say, pastoring is difficult. A pastor is just a father of a, of a house too big to, to sustain, to manage. A pastor is just someone who has too many kids to feed. <laughs> I relate very much to that. <laughs> you know, there's, if you saw our pantry, you'd be like, man, you must have a lot of kids. Yes. We have, <laughs> and, and they eat a lot. There's a lot of teenagers. You know, there's a lot of food. It goes, goes, goes through. <laughs> uh, and if it's, it can be extraordinarily uh, daunting sometimes uh, to be an elder. But what a privilege it is. Uh, Paul, uh, Peter rather, writes this in 1 Peter 5. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Well, hold on. Put the brake on. Peter, Simon Peter, is an, as an apostle and understands himself as an elder too. I'm just a peer with you, another elder, he says. Now that's extraordinary. The disciples, the twelve, even Paul himself and Timothy, others, they understood themselves to be in this similar role. Okay, so this is an exalted, this is a, a noble thing that we're aspiring to be because the saints who've come before uh, are really worthy of honor. Anyways, 1 Peter 5 says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The unfading crown. Wow, what a uh, unfading crown of glory. That'd be wonderful. So we're looking for a team, and I think also uh, elders are to be men. That's very clear in the text, especially in the context of chapter 2, where he said, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, authority over a man. He then addresses men in chapter 3. He'll address women, by the way, later on in the second paragraph as deacons, and I'll address that coming up. But here in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 
If there's any ambiguity that, well, maybe this is the he of like, you know, generic like any human being, he makes it quite clear uh, later when he says this, that he must be a one woman man. He must be the husband of one man. Now, that's very critical, especially in our confused times that we understand that. And if there were any uncertainty about this, you must be very careful in thinking about the ways in which you're innovating, I'll call it innovating, going beyond scripture. Because if you're following the example of Jesus, who did he pick to be the apostles? Twelve men. Not a single woman. Now, he could have. They were excellent women, right? His own mother was a phenomenal lady, Right? Father, let it be unto me as you will. Wow, mature from teenage years, right? Very amazing woman. It's not about ability, and I said this last week, and I'll say it again. It's about responsibility. It's not about ability, it's about responsibility. And from the very beginning, Adam was tempted to just shirk off that duty to sit back on the couch, eat his potato chips, and let Eve fall into sin. He didn't shepherd her well. He didn't deliver her. He didn't uh, rescue her. He didn't stand and defend her. Uh, So we must be really careful. I think more so than ever, we need men. And C.S. Lewis uh, talked about men without chests. We don't need empty men, hollow men. We need the kind of men that are described here who are Christian men. By that I mean this. An overseer must be above reproach. Above reproach. Now that is the overarching, in the structure of this paragraph, that is the overarching thing, qualification that you as a congregation and that we as men aspire to do and every Christian, man, woman, and child should aspire to be a person who's above reproach. Now that doesn't mean sinless. It's the idea of being without blame. It's like uh, if someone were to try to make accusations on Facebook about you, they would lodge, throw things at you, throw junk at you, but it would never stick because it wasn't true. Do you understand what I'm saying? No, they're going to say horrible things. It says it will be persecuted. It says that Christians, people will say ugly things about you, but the ugliness will not stick if you're an integrated Christian, right? If you're above reproach, that is, if you're doing your level best to please him, that doesn't mean that you're flawless in your heart, that, you, that your motives are never mingled. Of course not. You're a human, right? You're always going to have a portion of the finite, the flesh, do you, Right? But, but you're above reproach. That is, that is you're, you're a person who's integrated, who's put their, right orders, their, their loves in the right order. Uh, you're seeking to be uh, a frontline warrior, you might say. Uh, it says that there's going to be wolves coming in, and you're going to take one for the team as you follow Jesus. And, of course, there's a great shepherd that, that really takes out the wolf, and that's who you're leaning on. It's something that we must aspire to. That is, desire this noble task. I want to look at this character of being above reproach, what that looks like. Let's look very carefully at verses 2 through 7. There's a, quite a laundry list of things here that all come together to describe a well-rounded, mature Christian. Uh, this is what an overseer, what someone who desires to serve, to build the, uh, the household of faith up, uh, to see the, the, this church be, the church of the living God, be a pillar and buttress of truth. Uh, if you're aspiring to, to be a, a living stone in that house, to build on the shoulders of the apostles, this is sort of your target. Here we go. An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, uh, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. In that first section, and I'm going to break this out into just for 
I guess, an outline. I'm going to say that section there is like personal piety. It's talking about a man's character at the very heart. My favorite part is the very beginning. And clearly this was on Paul's mind as, as the, 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 one of the, the first indication of maturity. Is the man a one-woman man or not? And so many church leaders have faltered. I think by and large, the largest percentages of failures at this level of being an elder or pastor have been in the area of sexual fidelity. And when he says one woman man, this is not a numeric thing. He's not saying, does he only have one woman, one wife? It's not about that. It's not numerical emphasis here. He's saying, is this man so devoted and undiv- to his wife, so undivided in his heart that he immediately fires back and blocks with the shield of faith any fiery darts, any second glances at other women? Does he, does he love his wife so much that you think after talking to him, man, she must be the most amazing woman in the world? Because of his devotion to her, right? I like what, uh, who was it? Winston Churchill, he had kind of a neat thing. They were going around, what, what would you like to be if you were to die and come back or whatever? And they're all, you know, going around. And Winston Churchill's a very clever man. He was kind of the last one to go. This is later in his career. And he stood up and kind of raised his glasses, you know, as he was wont to do. And he says, I'd like to come back as the second husband of Mrs. Churchill. You know? <laughs> and I, it was funny. But, but at least, I don't know how he meant it in his heart, but at least aspire to be so devoted to the bride that you've chosen men that there's no question that you're committed to her. Whatever may have come. Now, Jesus can forgive incredible sins of the heart. Incredible infidelity internally and externally. He can and will do that if you seek his face. But make your resignation this, that you're going to be a one-woman one man. A one-woman man. He says, secondly, be sober-minded. Maybe your translation says temperate. William Hendrickson uh, put it this way, this man's pleasures are not primarily those of the flesh or the senses, physical senses, but those of the soul. He's sober-minded, he's temperate, he, he, he wants to rejoice in Jesus. That gets him up in the morning, more than making, you know, a dollar, more than uh, influence or power and all those dynamics. He is, the thirdly, self-controlled. Uh, very few, I have, and I don't think I have yet found an exception to this as we've interviewed elders. None of them have stood up and said, yes, I've got self-control under control, right? None of us would be like, yeah, y'all can learn from me. You just look at me to the side and my kids will tell you, self-control is something I'm still working on, right? Uh, I like mashed potatoes and gravy. Sometimes I like a second helping when I don't need a second helping, right? Do you see? So self-control is an ongoing thing. Uh, it is something you're laboring on, you're working on. That being said, you are well-ordered. You get the main things. You are making progress. You are growing in grace and godliness, an elder, someone who would aspire to serve others and to serve at a higher level or, or more quantity people must at least be a person who's continuing to grow in grace and godliness. If you've stalled out in your walk with Christ, you're not ready to be an elder. Or you're not acting like an elder if you're already in that office. I like what Richard Baxter uh, said uh, in his, uh, he wrote a book called The Reformed Pastor, kind of a manual for elders and ministry. Uh, he, he said this kind of in a, an exclamation at one point in his writing. Oh, brethren, it is so much easier to rebuke sin than to overcome it. It's so much easier to rebuke sin than to overcome it. 
I think, and that's why, just if you've heard me speak, you, you get the idea that he's ordinary, right? He's just like me. He struggles with diet. He struggles with this, that, other thing. Because I want you to know that you should be, realize that we're all welcome here because we're sinners who, through the power of Christ, overcome sin. It's not come here so you can continue in your sin. It's come here for Christ to overcome your sin. Right? Self-control, to learn that, one of the fruit of the spirits. Uh, fruit, the fruit of the spirit includes that dimension of love. Uh, anyways, respectable, he writes next. That is worthy of respect. Worthy of respect. Another um, leader in the church put it this way. Ministry is no place for a man whose life is con- a continual confusion of unaccomplished plans and unorganized activities. <laughs> Unaccomplished plans, unorganized activities. You're looking for follow-through, right? You want that for yourself. This, again, this is something that we should all aspire to be uh, as Christians, that we're following through on our commitments and not constantly jumping to the next thing, uh, you know, like some butterfly. Uh, hospitable literally means to love the stranger, to love strangers. You're, you're sharing when you see a need, even if you don't know that person at all. You see a need and you step in and care for them. And able to teach. Actually, this is the only uh, thing that might be that, that, that's close to an actual ability or a, ta- a skill that's required. Able to teach. But even here, it's talking about the heart in which someone teaches. That is, able to teach winsomely, they say. Like, able to, to get something across, not as a lecturer, but as someone who would love a sinner to Jesus. Do you see? Able to teach, an apt teacher. In, uh, I'm going to read First Timothy, or uh, sorry, Titus chapter 1. We're in First Timothy. Titus chapter 1, like four or five pages behind here. Because this is the other description that Paul writes. And, and the scriptures, we're so thankful that it was so important to the Lord that he included two descriptions in, this, in the New Testament of what elders ought to be. But First Timothy, Paul, or Titus, I said it again, Titus chapter 1, uh, Paul is writing and he gives to this delegate, uh, Titus, a description for elders this way. I'm going to read verse 5, Titus 1 verse 5. This is why I left you, Titus, in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, same uh, overarching umbrella criteria. Do you see that? If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, there you go, the same thing as the second, that's the first way of describing what it is to be above reproach, a one woman man, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. In fact, that last description, he must be able, he's got to hold the trustworthy message and taught without modification, either subtraction or addition. Hang on to the trustworthy, passing on that which they receive. We're just ambassadors of our king, not the king himself, right? A faithful ambassador just delivers the message, but doing it in such a way that they're doing it in sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. Which actually, if you look at 1 Timothy, is what that whole letter is about. 
There's so much to learn from how Paul coaches Timothy in this difficult open, open letter, really, on how to, to get order back into an unraveling situation in the early church where leaders are, are, are attempting all kinds of distractions uh, and delusions. The teachings of demons, in fact, chapter 4, verse 1 says... So able to teach. And then it says, uh, oh, I, I remembered. I, one of my favorite passages is Matthew 13, 51 and 52, where it says this, that a disciple uh, in the kingdom of heaven is like an owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. New treasures as well as old. You don't have to be up here to do that. You can do that at home it, on your own. You can do it with your children or grandchildren. Bringing out the apt, appropriate, timely treasure on the elder board, the team I'm a part of, I am not the one who has the most scripture memorized. There's another brother who gets that distinction. Right? You're part of a team. Can you bring an apt word? Do you know what to say when a certain things happen or a certain question is brought up by a neighbor or by a child, especially those who are making disciples? Aspire to this, that you would know the scriptures, that increasingly you would sort of bleed Bible when you're pricked. Do you know what I mean? Like it just kind of leaks out of you because you're not faking it. You're not pretending it. It's, it's so uh, reinvigorated you and taken over your skeletal structure of your, your, your person that you just are this. And that's really what an elder is. It's the reason this man is above reproach is not because he has the greatest sort of image management that is, you know, he's just really good at polishing and presenting himself and interviews real well. It's not that. It's a man who's so gripped by Jesus that he can't help but be like him. He does it accidentally. Do you see? Because he's following close on the heels of Jesus. I think everyone who loves Jesus wants that, right? Man, woman, or child. To be just Christian. Sometimes because you're deliberate and disciplined, but also sometimes accidentally just because you're so close to him. Like Moses, there used to be an afterglow when he was with the Lord each day. And, and he goes on and says this, not a drunkard, that is not one who's, con, who's controlled by substances of chemical nature, I'll broaden it beyond just alcohol, uh, anything that would dominate you, take, take, uh, take over your attention, um, you know, I think most of us who are my age and older can remember that vivid uh, commercial, this is your brain on drugs, right, and you know what do they do, they you put the frying egg in there. You know, for me, anything that would take over my, uh, uh, my clarity of mind and cause sort of a, a dullness there, I have a very hard time with it, and so should you. Now, there are times, medically, when your body is under great uh, onslaught and attack that you must endure such things. I understand that. But, but an elder is someone who doesn't do that. That's not his go-to coping mechanism. Do you see? He's not a drunkard. Not violent, but gentle. Like Jesus, he's a gentleman, not a bully. He's not quick to strike out verbally in defense of himself uh, or physically, for sure. He's not violent, but gentle. That doesn't mean he's a pushover. King David was not a pushover. He was a mighty man. And he was a man after God's own heart. So the Lord is looking for men who are champions of their households, who stand, who have the grit to take the heat uh, and to see their children and wives flourish. He's not a lover of money. He's not argumentative or quarrelsome, it says. So personal piety is that first section. Let me just, uh, okay, let me go rapidly now. Verse 4 and 5 is talking about home life. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, 
world? How will he care for God's church? I think this is probably the, the best, one of the best indicators of, of, of someone being a, a good candidate uh, to shepherd more people as if they're shepherding well their wife and their children. Honestly, people, and this is true, the people we bruise most easily is the person that's closest to us, our spouse. We depend on them, we count on them, they on us. And so we often say things flippantly and we hurt them accidentally and sometimes deliberately. We say things to our spouse and to our children that we would never say in a church like this, in a setting like this. Our flesh comes out, right? So if you look at a man's family and you see there's a woman who's shrinking. She's like a flower wilting under his care, under his husbanding. Not a good candidate for elder, if you see a woman who maybe once was shrinking but now is blooming and flourishing, you say, wow, look how she's flourishing. He must be tending her well. If he could tend her well and his children, I wonder if he would be a good candidate to tend others as well. That is the kind of shepherd we're looking for in this role. And that's what you ought to aspire to be. You don't have to be, again, a man for people around you to flourish. Obviously, wives, women, mothers, whether you are physically a mother or not, there are opportunities for people around you to flourish. Do people wilt in your presence, in your care? Or do they bloom? Right? No one at this stage in, in uh, the spring wants things to wilt. Right? We want them to bloom. And we want that as human beings too. So the home life, you have the personal piety, the home life, spiritual maturity. He must not be a recent convert or he may get puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. And then lastly, public reputation. He must be well thought of by outsiders so as not to come in under a disgrace. I would just say this. Um, the gospel is all about humility, uh, humbling ourselves before the Lord and then humbling yourself to serve him. And, and what we're looking for at Oak Grove and in the local church is not that you have to do it our way in any local church, but you need to be a biblical church. You need to have a, a biblical rationale for the structure that you choose in your household of faith. We're rooting and grounding ours in 1 Timothy 3, the whole chapter, in Titus 1, in the observations of the Old Testament. And we're seeking to be a humble people because the gospel is not that the good are in and the bad are out, nor is the gospel that the open-minded are in and the judgmental are supposed to stay out. It's that the the humble are in and that the proud are out. The only disqualification, the only way to, to, to not be uh, qualified for the gospel is to refuse it, to refuse to humble yourself before the Lord Jesus. I, I listened to this song, I'll finish with this. Uh, it's, it's to the tune Old Lang Syne, Old Lang Syne, and it's kind of that, you know, uh, the, the, the song that we sing uh, around uh, New Year's Day or evening, evening and all that. But there's, it was rewritten with some new words. I'm going to read just the first stanza. Should nothing of our efforts stand, no legacy survive. Unless the Lord does raise the house, in vain its builders strive. To you who boast tomorrow's gain, tell me what is your life? A mist that vanishes at dawn. All glory be to Christ. I hope you aspire to be an elder. That is the, the means that God has ordained by which the kingdom advances, by which the household is ordered, by which the pillar and buttress of the truth is functioning. And we need men uh, who will serve their wives and children and those around them. We need women who, who tend well and see other human beings flourish and serve them well. And we need a church that's ordered according to God's word and not by our fleshly ideas or aspirations, but to be full of Christ. 
Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for guiding us uh, in your word. We thank you for clarity. Uh, we want to know how to behave, how to be ordered. Uh, the more that we look around us, we see the disordered situations of organizations and churches and our society as a whole. And we know that our only hope is Christ. We pray, oh God, that you would grant to us shepherds after your own heart. Those that are in this role, we ask, oh God, that you would inflame them with a zeal for the living God, that you would give them a jealousy for the bride of Christ, that you would give them an earnestness for the salvation of souls. Would you give us a love and a brotherly affection for one another that that surpasses anything that the world tries to parody or copy or mimic? Grant that we might be such a people that we're a place where strangers come in and desire to know Christ and to be near to him and, and recognize that whatever they've been through, Christ is able to take their burdens from them. That they will be warmly received and not required to get their life in order to be received. Lord, thank you uh, for those who serve here and those who will serve. And we pray, God, that you would bless us with this great charge that we might be ascending church, that we might be measured not by our seating capacity, but by our sending capacity. And that the gospel of Jesus Christ might go out in this area and to the ends of the earth, both this summer and every season. To God be the glory, only through Christ and through your children. Raise us up, please. In Christ's name, amen.